Running a small business is hard. You wear all of the hats. You lead the company, you're doing the sales, you're doing the operations, you're doing the HR, you're doing the IT. Do you really know all of the things you should be doing for your IT? Are you wasting time trying to solve problems that could be solved much quicker by someone who's an expert in that field? Get in touch with the team at Little Big Tech. We can cover all of your needs, make sure that you have appropriate cybersecurity in place, that all your data's backed up, that your team are all able to work whenever and wherever they need to work. Go to www.littlebigtech.co.uk and get in touch. The team would love to help you out. Today, I'm joined by Jen Lothian. Jen is an incredible person who's overcome multiple personal tragedies, thrived in a male-dominated environment, and had a post-military career that is nothing short of outstanding. Jen now runs her own startup company on a journey to empower the masses with their own data and increase financial literacy. Hi, Jen. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Nick. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So let's, uh, let's start the story at the start. So young Jen makes a decision to join the army. What, what led to that? An accident and ignorance, I think, are the easiest way to put it. So I went to all-girls school in London. Um, I was young for my year and I wanted to go travelling in my gap year. Um, but I was still only going to be 17. So my mum turned around and said, no chance. And I said, well, you're yeah, in the completely precocious child that I was. Find me something better to do. So to eternal regret, she um, identified that you could do a thing called a gap year in the army, and I decided to apply for it, uh, not really knowing what I was doing. So for anybody that's seen the film Private Benjamin, her journey into the military was startlingly similar to, to mine. Yeah, so Private Benjamin is basically this chick played by Goldie Horn, who uh, gets sold the story of, oh, you can go and do sailing in uniform, it'd be lovely. And uh, I, very much the same thing, because you've got to remember back in, this was 1998, 1999, um, it was pre-Iraq, pre-Afghanistan, Bosnia was going on, but it was very much more removed. The press wasn't what it is now. Um, so the world was an entirely different place. There weren't very many women in the military at that time at all. Uh, and I remember walking into the Charing Cross branch of uh, the careers office and listening to some of the other podcasts before when I think one of the other chaps had this guy come up to him saying, oh, would you like to join the Marines? For me, it wasn't quite the same journey. I walked in, I was wearing high heel shoes. I was skinny back then with long peroxide blonde hair. I had a pink sparkly mobile phone, yeah, one of the old Nokia ones, and a bright pink roll neck jumper. And when I walked in, all three chaps behind the, uh, the desk looked so, so terrified. You've never seen people look away. And the relief on the RAF and the Navy recruiter's face when I walked up to the army desk was like palpable. And I said, yeah, yeah, I want to do a gap year commission in the army. And he never even heard of it. So uh, thus ensued a whole kind of situation of trying to get in and doing RCB, RCB briefing in the space of like six weeks, which is all the, the assessments that you do. Um, and somewhat miraculously, I think through, again, ignorance and determination, I got accepted. And so uh, what did you do on, uh, on this gap year? So I joined the engineers um, and we did four whole weeks at Sandhurst, uh, which was an eye-opening experience um, for somebody who had never seen a rifle before. And everybody else had done cadets and were very kind of army barmy. And my platoon commander said, you know, you, uh, the beginning, Miss Jones, you did really flounder like a fish out of water. I was like, yep, yeah, it's a pretty fair assessment. Um, 
but oddly against all hope and expectation I sort of took to it and I think the reason I took to it was because it was just about getting head down getting on with it and just keeping going I've always been quite stubborn quite determined uh, and so it kind of played into that and then we went and did I think two days troop commander's course as wasn't really a troop commander's course um, at the uh, engineer's headquarters um, at Chatham and then I was deployed off to my regiment who were in a bit of a flat because they thought I was a bloke because they'd never really had a girl before so <laughs> what they did was they cleared out an entire wing of uh, the officer's mess so that I could be female <laughs> in the officer's mess <laughs> and the only person that was allowed to be in the wing was the the doc who was a major um, he was probably the least appropriate person to be in the wing um, in reflection. Uh, but yeah, I had a whole wing. Wow. That's quite some introduction to this is what army life looks like. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was great. And uh, I remember on the first day that I was there, I was being shown around the regiment and I was walked over to uh, our squadron offices. And there was a civilian bloke, he must have been about 50, driving a pickup truck. Uh, oh, no, it was a forklift truck. Um, and he turned around to me and said, morning, Miss Jones. And I was like, shit, if on day one, the civilian dude in the forklift knows my name, I was like, right, this is a good indicator for how this year's going to go. It would seem you enjoyed it because you went back again afterwards. Yes and no. So I, I think I found something that I felt I took to against all kind of expectations. I mean, my school, I'd gone to boarding school for sixth form and a whole bunch of the guys didn't speak to me when they found out that I'd got into the military because they were so outraged by it, um, as were a gazillion other people. To put it in context, in that time, I remember the day that it became legal to be gay in the army. I remember that day. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember a briefing. Yeah. So. I, and it, you know, I'd come from cosmopolitan central London. The fact that you weren't allowed to be gay to me was like the most... I grew up in a very kind of multicultural environment. It was completely bananas. I would have to go and like leopard crawl through an assault course, but I wasn't allowed to wear trousers in the mess. So I constantly looked like I was the sort of a victim of abuse covered in bruises with my legs showing. Um, and yeah, we referred to as the lumpy jumpers. So it was, it was a different army to the one that is now. It, it was a tough, yeah. it was a tough gig. Um, I deployed to Belize for a few months as well, um, which was amazing and very tough all at the same time um, because it wasn't just the engineers, there were the Marines, there was everybody else there doing uh, jungle warfare training. So to say that you were an object of interest was an understatement. But outside of that, I kind of realized I quite liked the sense of purpose, the idea that something was greater than you were, the camaraderie, you know, the satisfaction that you get from really pushing yourself further than you thought you could go and it all gets a little bit kind of addictive and you think you know when when I then went to uni I was sponsored through uni as well and had to do ATC and did TA stuff um and so sort of got spat out at the end of that and sort of rejoined up almost by just being part of this big turning wheel and not really feeling the need to get off it rather than making a conscious decision to join okay so then you you, you did uni loaded because the army was paying you uh to go through through uni uh, and then off to Sanders to do it properly. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, yes, I'd spent a year in the army, but you are very closeted. You're very looked after because you're an 18-year-old, particularly yeah. an 18-year-old chick. And, yeah, so I've actually had three commissions in my time, my gap year commission, my TA commission, and my regular commission. Uh, yeah, and so I went back to Sandhurst in January 2004. I took six months off to go skydiving 
uh, in New Zealand for a few months and then traveled around South America because all of my adult life had been so military orientated that I thought I needed to have at least a few months you know, jumping out of planes. Why not? Awesome. So then uh, going through Sandus, you get to the point where you, you're, you're choosing where you want to go. Well, yeah and no, because I was sponsored by the engineers, it was always sort of assumed. So basically, if you got the sponsorship and if you've done a gap year, it's very much assumed that you're part of that space. It's not very popular to move away from that. My story is a little bit different because my second time of Santa, so my boyfriend and I were staying at my folks' house in London. He just passed his motorbike test. We were driving back to Santa very early one Monday morning before the trench digging exercise, and he crashed. We had a really, really nasty crash on the A40 coming out of London. The whole road was closed off for a few hours, uh, which sort of tells you how bad it was. He was um, very, very badly injured. The helicopter came, et cetera, et cetera. I was very badly injured, but not fatally. We got to hospital. I remember having to call my parents to tell them, um, which was tricky because I only had one working limb at that point. Very sadly, he died as a result of his injuries. So that was a somewhat unexpected turn of events. Yeah. Um, did you have a break in your, your period at Sandhurst for recovery then? Yeah, well, they wouldn't let me go back to Sandhurst until I could wash myself, um, genuinely. It seems reasonable. I mean, yeah, the, the point was they weren't really equipped for deeply invalided people. So I was really fortunate that I didn't have any kind of near-fatal injuries, but I had very prolific injuries. Um, so both my legs and my right arm were pretty messed up. So I couldn't wash myself for over a month. I think I couldn't dress myself for about three months. So it was pretty messed up. So I went home. My mum had to give up work to look after me, bless her. Um, and that was really the first time in my life I understood the, what privilege meant. And it's actually the start of the my arc, or the second start of my arc, kind of, which is what we're doing now. Having that support from my family, from my friends, like, you know, I'm not massively sane, but I'm no less sane than I was before the accident. The military sent me to a psychiatrist for six months, which was invaluable. I was able to have all the love and support physically and emotionally that <clears throat> I think many people don't have. And I think it's one of the things I've seen a lot within the veteran community when they come out is they don't have that ecosystem that's there to support them. And so I've been told a lot, like, it's amazing you've recovered and blah, 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 blah. But I really put a huge amount of that down to my situation and circumstance more than anything else. And I think that's really underestimated in the world of recovery. Um, so, yeah, so I got to the point where I was able to wash myself but not dress myself. And I was allowed back into Santos. And Santos were amazing. Um, they, again, talk about clearing out wings. The wireless, which is the bit in the basement where all the sick people go and live. Um, so in one of the sections of the basement, they cleared all the blokes out and filled it with girls, which hadn't normally been the case because the wireless is mixed, basically because it meant that everybody could then dress me on a daily basis. Um, and they did, and they were amazing. I went in, was on the wireless for a year. I had like multiple reconstructive surgeries, heart didn't really work very well for a little bit, which is a bit tricky. Um, and I wasn't supposed to recover. But when something is taken away from you, somebody that you love, um, your freedom of movement, your independence, your sanity. I was reasonably determined that whilst so much had been taken away and everything had been taken away from him and from his parents and brother more than anything else, uh, that I wasn't going to let it take my, my future away. So when you talk about kind of being focused on something, my focus was on getting better because I didn't want to lose my future as well as his future. 
quite motivating. Uh, so I did recover um, against all medical odds. They now do interfragmental plating slightly differently than they did at the time. I had very unusual injuries because of hitting tarmac at 80 miles an hour caused my arm to kind of crush in on itself and there were all sorts of complications. Um, so I think I was an interesting use case for the doctors um, and got to know the doctors very, very well. Right. So that, that's, that's quite some journey. So then, uh, so you'd started Sanders, you're in the second term, you have this horrific crash, you lose your boyfriend, then six months at home. A one year, month at home. A one month at home. One month at home, back to Sandhurst. Back to Sandhurst, a year. In the wireless. In, in the wireless, and then back into. Yeah, so they didn't want me to go back in because I then had a complication. I had to have another surgery. But I was like, if I have to do another term on the wireless, and anybody that's been on the wireless knows what that feels like. If I have to do another term here, I'm going to go absolutely crazy. I decided that I would get myself to a point where I could pass the basic fitness test. So, you know, the CFT and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the deal I made with the CMO chief medical officer was if I can pass the tests, I'm allowed back on the course, even though my arm was still effectively broken in six places. So I then was allowed to rejoin the course and I went straight back in a couple of days before uh, first encounter, which is digging. So I had the joyful experience of having 72 hours straight digging trenches with an arm effectively broken in six places, which I would not strongly recommend to anyone. But, you know, did that, got through, got out of the wireless. Wow. And then went on and the rest of Sandhurst did went, Sandhurst. Went okay. Yeah, I was, again, like, the people I had around me were phenomenal. So one of the girls in the platoon I rejoined, I'd been friends with since uni. And oh my God, she just looked after me so well. And there's a group of us who I actually saw last week, five of us who was super close from that time. And we still are to this day, very different people. We've all taken very different life journeys, but we dragged each other kicking and screaming <laughs> through Sandhurst. So yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't straightforward. They decided to bury um, my, my boyfriend James's ashes under a tree in Sandhurst, so, um, which was lovely for his parents, but it wasn't ideal that I basically got to like march past his grave multiple times a day. Um, so things like that were unhelpful. But, you know, I had, again, an incredibly sort of supportive group of people, family, and the whole of, the whole of Santos had been really rocked by it um, because it was before, like I said, before Iraq, before Afghanistan, he was the first of our peer group that had really died. He was a real kind of shining star. Um, I was kind of pretty well known because I'd done gap year and OTC and all the rest of it. And so I think it, it caused huge impact, not just to me, but to the whole of the establishment at the time. Yeah. You then pivoted away from the engineer. Yes, yeah, so I thought well, he was an engineer cadet as well. So I thought it might be better to just have a little bit of a clean break. And so I joined the artillery instead, which I think was a, a really good decision. Um, and I had a great time with the artillery. So what made you choose artillery? Um, I knew at that point I wasn't going to stay in for a long time. So I've still got injuries from the accident um, and was in like a lot of pain. And so I thought, I don't really want to be doing this for long term and my body won't survive it. So if I'm going to go and do it, I might as well do it properly. Um, and at the time, we, women weren't allowed to join, and not that I'd ever wanted to join the infantry, but weren't allowed to join the infantry or the cavalry. So uh, the artillery was kind of going to be the most um, combat orientated role that I could take on. The most alley job you could get. Most alley job that I could get, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so then how did that go? You uh, you then went off, joined the uh, joined the artillery. Joined the artillery, had a blast, did the Young Officers course, uh, which I'd recommend to anybody as an activity. It was the most fun. Coddled my liver. liver. Uh, turns out, because I'm a bit of a geek and I love science, that actually the artillery was a really natural fit for me because it's just basically trigonometry. And so I found that whole command post officer steering large ammunitions to land in the right place really natural which just made life really easy and so I was then able to have my first choice of where I wanted to go to regiment and I was able to choose a regiment and that I knew was going to be re-rolling from um, uh, the AS-90 to the 105mm light gun and going out to Afghanistan in support of the commandos so I got to go to that direction of travel. How was that? How How was life doing that? Well, I mean, it was great. So I went out to Germany, did the wires course, fantastic time. Went out to Germany, brilliant. Went straight out. The regiment were in Cyprus. I went straight out to Cyprus. Kind of didn't really have a proper job because they were all filled already. So I had all the random bakshi jobs. So when you did the orders in the morning, I ended up being like the most vocal person because I had all the other shit jobs that nobody else wanted. (laughs) 2006, Israel started bombing, more complicated than this, but Israel started bombing Lebanon. Uh, the UN needed to do an evac because we were in Cyprus. Um, it was decided that whichever country was on point probably wasn't the right people to do that. So we got, uh, I think at like 24 hours notice, got told that we were going to deploy um, to the Lebanon to evacuate UN personnel. Um, I was the most junior person, junior officer in the regiment, so shouldn't have been able to go. Everybody obviously wanted to go. But they realised they needed a female on board because of cultural sensitivities. So I got to go, much to the chagrin of everyone else. We rocked up the next morning. There was a whole discussion about whether we were going to be allowed to take rifles or not rifles. And I was like, well, you know, at least if we take them, we can lock them in a room and they're there if we need them. So we then were able to do that. We got to the dock in Cyprus, Hart Port, Cyprus Harbour. Uh, and we were like, what, what are we going on? Because it was all very, very last minute. Uh, and this cruise ship rocked up, old cruise ship. And it did, you know, whatever the word is for people getting off the ship, but all the passengers got off the cruise ship. And then it's about an hour's wait. And then most of the staff got off the crew, got off the cruise ship because they'd just been told where they were going and didn't want to go. So I think we got left with the Ukrainian dance troupe and the captain's crew were the only ones that stayed on. And so I think it was like 21 of us jumped on board this cruise ship and with uh, a chap from the UN... And we went, we sailed over to uh, to the Port of Tyr, which was where most of the impact was being felt. It's pretty heavy bombing. Uh, and we were then responsible for evacuating a bunch of people. We couldn't dock because the port was too shallow. So we had to do it on ribs in and out. We were only supposed to bring back about 100 people. But I think we brought back about 400 people because we kind of thought, well, by the time that... Save the fuel. Well, yeah. by, <laughs> by the time that we're back, they can't do much about it and people are out of out of a bad situation. So we got a little bit told off, but it was all right. And that was your first operational experience? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really call it operational experience because the Israelis are a really smart military. They're not going to harm us. Um, and, you know, our point here is not to get involved in everything that's going on. It's just to get people out safely. And so I didn't ever really feel threatened, but there are some really cool pictures of me like carrying babies with like bombs going off in the background, riding on the back of this rib. So yeah, got good photos. Well, I absolutely need to see those photos. Yeah, yeah, they're really good. <laughs> <laughs> so then, uh, other up tours, Afghan? Yeah, so then came back from Cyprus, we re-rolled. That was a crazy time because normally with the, the artillery, you've got a regiment that supports the commandos and a regiment that supports the paras. 
Um, but because they'd been out so much at this point, we were on Operic 7 um, in 2006. The, the tempo of deployment was too high, so we had to re-roll um, to the light gun, uh, which was brilliant. Um, so I had to teach people on the light gun, which was comical because you're there going, I've never seen this blimmin' thing before. So you're reading the manual the night before, you and your sergeant are like, fuck, what are we going to do here? Uh, so yeah, we, we re-rolled, big organizational activity. We did loads of training, so we're coming back to and from Germany and the UK. So I kept having to lead mile-long convoys from Germany back to, you know, northeast. And then we eventually deployed to Afghan in the summer. I think it must have been the summer 2006, whenever Operic 7 started. But we were um, we were the integral support, ended up being the integral support for the commandos. So again, like they were a little bit surprised by my existence, um, even though it's not 1999 anymore, because uh, at that point, women hadn't really been out in any sort of tech, you know, there's a front line, but you know, like yeah. combat-y type role. Um, and they initially kind of referred to us as Kagage and we had all sorts of stuff there. But yeah, we- As what? Kagage. Like, that's, a, that's a word I've not heard. Before. So Kagage means like kind of crap baggage, like shit that you've got to like carry oh. with you. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it was super charming. <laughs> um, and like pissed the blokes off quite a bit, but I was like, look guys, we'll, we'll prove our worth. We just got to like, let them, by this point, I'm well-versed in like lots of hot air. Um, we just got to let them have their hot air and then the time will come and be fine. But yeah, so we first, we were out in um, Fob Rob up north um, in support of the American SF. Um, yeah, who I've were, been there, just outside Sangin. Yeah, yeah, who were mental. And again, like one of them somehow got hold of this book about religion and being a woman. And I was like, how in a fob in the arse end of Afghan have you got an effing book on women in Christ, I'm not religious. And yeah, I, was like, I just don't really know what to do with this apart from say thank you and run away into my ISO container. So yeah, so we were there and then we were given like something like 12 hours to go on a thing, but it was when Miss Akala was being retaken. Yeah. So we had to get our vehicles, I hadn't moved for 18 months ready in a day. And we had you know, no cam belt in one vehicle, no starter motor in another, had to pill for bits of engine and stuff. So I uh, managed to get us moving. Our Remy guy was superb, absolute genius. Um, we managed to get all the vehicles moving, lots of grumbling, uh, and then got on the road for, well, I think what was probably some of the worst hours of my life was driving back in a shitty Pinsgar with no protection whatsoever through the middle of the night with the night vision goggles across the worst you know, very arid because it's sort of September time, uh, back to Camp Bastion, which we'd not seen for months. Um, and then we were there for a little bit, went to the briefing. We were going part of um, what became Otmar Karadad, which was a big retaking of Musakala. And there was a little sort of, I don't know, I can't remember any of the terminology, been out for so long, uh, a little kind of initial force that went in to support. So the SF were trying to get this warlord to turn um, and so they were doing all their SFE things and they needed us to go and hold the ground, but nobody had been in that space before. So we had, uh, I think, a regiment of Marines securing the crossing. We had like SF snipers, we had artillery support, we had a squadron of engineers. It took them two days to get us across. And when we we're right in the middle of this wadi, which is absolutely bone fucking dry, we, as my little pins with this giant trailer that looked like we we're on dad's army, got stuck in the one bit of mud in the entire place. And there's like, we're getting shot at and bombed. Like the artillery are firing. We had air support, we had snipe. Like it was all going. 
And I'm like, fucking up all the people to get stuck in the mud, it's a token chick. And then my driver, who was amazing, got like paralysis. And so he just stood there, which is not an ideal thing to do. So I'm there trying to get this like one ton trailer out of the mud, covered head to toe in mud. There's no mud in the entire of Afghanistan at this point. I'm head to toe in mud. And fortunately the Rimi truck came and got us out. I mean, it was not, not my finest moment. Wow, that's, uh, that, that's quite, some, quite some scene. How was the rest of the tour? It was, that was interesting because we were the longest ever maneuver operations group. So we're out and about for the single longest period of time. So we all went totally feral. Um, and we had times where we kind of ran out of, you know, water and ammunition and bits and pieces like that. So there were moments, but the reality was when I think about my kind of friends and colleagues and what they went through, which was so much more kinetic um, and the injuries that people sustained and the much more um, kind of close combat situations, being out and about and on a movement operations group was a significantly easier gig to end up in. I mean, we got mortared and shelled every day, but they didn't do a very good job of hitting us. So that's very different, I think, from being that's, in. That's terrifying the first time it happens. Oh, first time it happens. And we were all like like fla <laughs> flapping chickens. And I remember me and my sergeant dived under our, our truck and like face to face under the truck with like our bums and legs sticking out. And we're like, this, this is a really dumb, embarrassing thing that we've both just done. And we have to get back out again. Um, so, yeah, the first time we flapped like chickens. Three months in, people don't look up from the book. Like, no. Oh. And, and you don't. <laughs> yeah. It's like ridiculous, it's weird, isn't, isn't it? it? It was really interesting psychologically. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why I think there should be more women around. Because the escalation and like the testosterone, I saw it with some of the other units we supported... It's like, it, well, your normal changes and something a bit more extreme happens and then it happens again and you get desensitized to it and then it goes and, and I can see why at that point I could reflect on how some of the behaviors that have happened in other combat environments had happened. And I remember on one occasion we were being mortared and there was this dude sat on a chair and we were driving past and we knew we were about to be ambushed and we could see the spotter. Um, but they'd only just changed the um, rules of engagement in our tour, and, alpha. <laughs> and uh, I could have just I could have just shot him. And my guys were like, "Boss, can we just shoot him?" And I was like, "We can't." And they're like, "We can." And I was like, "We'll get back alive, but we also have to live with what we've done." Um, and I held that really strongly true. And I think, particularly having the experience of going through kind of the emotional and physical recovery when I lost James. I really learned the impact of choice and how you might not like your choices, but you always have a choice. To me, integrity is making the right choice at the hard times, not making the right choice in the easy times. That doesn't count. Um, and so making those choices, I think, were the right ones to make. And I think it meant that we all came back with less to process and carry than some of the other guys I know that came back. Got back... Okay, everyone in your so unit. So I then, well, I then left. I then got an, uh, an e bluey that told me my mum had terminal cancer, um, and so <laughs> I was like, oh fuck. So I managed to get out. Where we were was quite remote, so it took me three days to be kind of um, uh, to be removed out of there. Got back to the UK. She was hospitalised the day that I got back and never came out of hospital, um, and that was really tricky because I was still. No decompression. I'd literally, there was Afghan sand in the hallway. I got a flight back from Bryce. My dad and my brother picked me up. At this point, because we've been in this 
mog for so long. I'd mainly only spoken to people about football, boobs, neither of which I have any interest in. And I just remember my dad and my brother's face, like, what the fuck is happening? I was like ripped because I hadn't, you know, I'd been living off rat packs for four, five months at this point. I was ripped, absolutely stacked, um, talking, swearing like a trooper, not using whole sentences. And they were like, shit. And I was like, this is why people normally get to decompression for like 48 hours. <laughs> Big believer in decompression. And so I like, kind of like hulk my way in. Like, my traps are freaking massive because we'd always, you know, we're always wearing body armor and carrying shit around. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then suddenly I'm in a hospital off Harley Street. You know, mum was really, really ill. She had bowel cancer, late stage, very aggressive bowel cancer, not the cancer to get. Um, and I had to have a really grim conversation with the doctors to tell me when she was going to die. And they hadn't had the conversation with my dad and my brother yet. Turns out that when you deal with really severe medical issues, doctors only tell you what you ask, not the whole truth. And so I had to basically quite literally physically corner this chap and say, what's the life expectancy? Because I either need to leave my troop in Afghanistan or I need to leave my mum on her deathbed. I'm 26 years old and this is a really shit decision to make, so I need to at least be informed making it. So I then knew that, because whilst we knew it was terminal, we didn't know life expectancy, um, I then knew that she was gonna die within you know, a month or so before my dad and my brother did, so that was suboptimal. Um, but the regiment were really, really kind, and I was really struggling to make the decision about what to do. Um, and in the end, the adjutant very kindly just said, you know, you're not going to be able to come back and operate effectively. You've got to stay there. I, I would have gone back and operated effectively, but it wouldn't have been what I wanted to do. So yeah. I was eternally grateful that they let me stay. Um, and then I went back to Germany for the last month before they ended the tour, after she passed away. Wow. So then uh, the, the rest of the regiment came back? The rest of the regiment came back. I then signed off um, because I was like, I'm a really old 26-year-old. I've had like a journey. I'm still saying it's a fucking miracle. I drink way too much, but other than that, it could be worse. Um, and I also couldn't put my dad and my brother through anymore. Like they've been through a lot at this point. Um, and that was a really interesting one because I kept having people go, oh, you could be the first woman to do this, first woman to do that. And I remember thinking for the first time what success meant to me. And success wasn't having a, a rank or a title or a whatever else. I was like, success for me wasn't not having a family because I had, was the first whatever. I mean, I didn't want that written on my gravestone. Yeah. Um, and that was really helpful for then going into Civi World was like, well, I know that I don't really give a shit about job title. Um, I don't really give a shit about what other people think uh i mean people i care love and respect i could think but you know otherwise i don't really care um and yeah so i signed off and and left and i went and did a ski season i thought i was like nice. owed a little bit of you know good time so i went out to verbier um and skied for six months and then came home nice that's, yeah. a, that's a nice way to exit of like decompression yeah, yeah. Fab decompression. Highly recommend it to anybody out there who's thinking. Six months of drinking and skiing. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I could get on board with that. You've got great taste. You're listening to a great podcast. Brought to you by The Podcast Guys. One of the leading podcast production companies in the UK and US. We make podcasts for some of the world's leading brands. And if you're a brand owner, and want to hear more, head to thepodcastguys.co.uk.
So then uh, you came back from skiing. You're like, right, what am I going to do now? Came back skiing. Slightly tricky. My dad had checked up with a girlfriend and I got booted out of the house. So I found myself homeless, jobless and penniless. Ski season doesn't do well for your bank bounds. Um, and I was like, oh, shit. Um, so I couch surfed for a while. Managed to get a job at Control Risks, who were the original Kidnap Ransom firm, because they were doing the uh, Iraq oil bidding rounds. But it was, it felt like kind of being in the army, but not in green kit. Like it was a bit of a cheat job. So I kind of knew I wouldn't stick at it, but they were really kind in that they gave me a permanent contract so I could get a flat. And I bought a flat with my then boyfriend. Um, and uh, we renovated the flat. That was my second time I flipped a, a house. So I did control risk for a bit. Then I got asked to interview for a job at insurance. Um, and so I went into insurance. It turned out they just wanted a dolly bird. So they'd employed this very capable lady before me, girl before me, who done a really good job of going out to Guernsey and Jersey and wooed loads of non-executive directors. Um, I went and that's what they wanted me to do as well. And I was like, fuck my life. I have worked my ass off at school. You know, I've got a BSc in economics. I've been in the military and my sole sum value now is to like, flatter the ego of some dubious 60-year-old man. I was like, this is not aspirational. Um, so I resigned from that and my parting um, gift from the, the person who ran the firm at the time, um, she hadn't spoken to me since I resigned. She said, we've learned from you not to hire intelligent people. And I was just like... <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, and, and it was in a lift. So she had to speak to me because we were in a lift. And I was like, holy moly. But what it taught me, I was miserable for 10 months I was there. Although I met some really fantastic people who I do really adore. I'm actually seeing them next week. But what I learned there is I wanted to be in a meritocracy, is that I've got a really good work ethic. Like that's my, one of the things I'm really good at. Loads of things I'm crap at. Work ethic I'm good at. I wanted to go somewhere where it was a meritocracy where it was big enough to allow me career mobility, because otherwise you're in dead man's shoes, um, and where I could learn and they had the capacity to teach me. Because you go into a really small firm that you haven't got capacity to be taught. So I looked at investment banking, I got offered a job at Bank of America and another one at Morgan Stanley, um, took the Bank of America job, and then ended up, this was comical, I think I've told you this before, I ended up uh, very in very short order running global technology incidents for Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, for all of the world, and all of their business lines apart from retail. Um, and what was particularly comical about that is I didn't know what a server was when I got the job. And so you've got like some of the biggest infrastructure being smashed together. So this is like 2009 now, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch being smashed together. You know, Bank of America employs three times the people of the British army. I had a team of like 45 people globally dealing with the time that we lost Moscow office or the time that the power got cut to the whole of the New York trading floor. Um, and Muggins here didn't know what a server was. It absolutely friggin' hilarious. <laughs> that is pretty epic. I mean, yeah. how do you get that job? I mean, good, good question, Nick. Good question. <laughs> I asked the same thing. Um, because the, basically what happened, they'd lost the data center. You know, in the olden days when everybody had like these big data centers, lost the data center, it caused loads of, loads of issues. They were trying to find somebody to fix it. But technologists by nature can be quite kind of myopically focused. And so if you're dealing with a mass event, and like some of these events, we had like 400 people working on solving them. And we used to have different conference calls, we called bridge lines, like eight or nine different bridge yeah. lines. And so they just didn't have the skill set for people to manage this huge cluster and also technologists tend to want to fix the problem at root whereas actually all you want to do in that scenario is restore 
Yeah. Um, and so they kind of needed somebody to come and do that. Um, and I got interviewed and they asked me a question about one time I, you know, faced adversity and I gave them an example of when I jumped in a Wemmick and drove across a bit of Afghan because the back Ford Air Controller wasn't on his radio. And so I managed to get to like their rear echelon to get on a different radio to get their fac on a radio and work. And they're like, oh, okay, so you're good at problem solving. So yeah, I'm pretty good at problem solving. So that's how I got the gig. Didn't sleep for 18 months. I ended up having uh, eye eczema. I looked like a red polar bear. Wow. Panda bear, rather. Um, and I had migraines that manifested as stroke. So at 29, we thought I was having a stroke because um, I was working so much. Did an average of a 95-hour week. Um, and so that's when I met my now husband. And for the first three months we were together, I didn't have a day off. And I was woken up on average three or four nights a week. Um, did, did you meet him at work? No, I met him skiing. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so he's ex-army, he's ex-engineers. He was in the engineers at the time. We met skiing. I thought it'd be a lovely holiday romance, uh, to put it nicely. Um, he thought it would not be a romance, that it would be a longer thing. I tried to dump him about two or three times, so I didn't want to be an army wife. And he told me no. And, <laughs> <laughs> true story, uh, we're now married with two kids and a cat. So, you know, he was right. Wow. So, you're now at Merrill Lynch. You've, you, you're with your future husband. Uh, you're crushing it at work, although you're Dying. working ridiculous bad, hours. Bad, bad, bad. Not healthy. Yeah. Taught me that just, you know, well, no, that's not trading. I learned this other lesson later. But then I then I went to go and work on the trading floor um, as a uh, kind of chief of staff role. But that was through military network. And certainly a lot of stuff, a theme that comes up, I think, through a lot of these podcasts is the importance of networking. And I didn't. I think because I grew up in a world filled with nepotism, that I was always very anti it. Uh, and I wanted to be able to do things on my own two feet, yada, yada. Um, but it's very different. Nepotism and networking are very, very different. And, you know, we work together sometimes. And a big part of that is about knowing people have the same values, um, have the same work ethic, are reliable, trustworthy, competent, um, and it's really hard to ascertain all that in an interview process. And so actually, if you can network and you can establish that and you can establish that you're competent and you're consistent, um, and then other people will be willing to kind of recommend you and all the rest of it. And so particularly what we're doing now, it's all about networking. But it took me, I mean, I was slow off the mark with yeah, the networking too. thing. Like, like really embarrassingly slow off the mark. The first time I ever did any form of networking was when I moved into the trading floor. At which point you're only about 31. Not yet 30, but yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> you started so, way before. So, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so I then did that for a year and then there was all sorts of shenanigans and appalling behaviour. Have you ever seen BBC Industry? No. Oh, holy moly, like my soul is black as tar. It's absolutely true. And really sadly, the year I was there was the year that a kid died as one of the interns. And a lot of stuff in industry, I think, is based on that sort of time. Um, and there's nothing in industry that I can't give you names of when that's happened to people. So my moral compass was misaligned with that space. Uh, so I survived a year and I was like, the pay is amazing, but it's not everything and I'm not happy. This isn't my tribe. So I went back into technology and um, I ran the Windows upgrade for Emir. So I had a team of about 150 people and we had uh, less than a year to upgrade 30,000 devices across 18 countries or something. It's pretty stressful. Wow. 
got told by my boss at one point to uh, wear more makeup because HL were worried that I was looking really tired. Because <laughs> that's the solution to that problem. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's a bit like that. We moved to my wedding so that I could do the project. Um, yeah, obviously. I mean, idiot. Uh, and then I'd had enough uh, of banking. Yeah, so I, went I, I could get on board with, <laughs> with, with that position. Yeah. Uh, so I went to go and work at Octopus Investments, set up their uh, change and delivery function for them over there when there were only 250 people. Uh, and that was just through a recruiter um, and was really serendipitous. I wanted to go contracting. There was one recruiter desk where there was um, both... Uh, permanent and contract roles on the same desk, which is really unusual for recruiters. Recruiters tend to either be, I mean, you know this, but for people listening, getting that, tend to be either for contractor or permanent. I think the lesson I learned there was um, don't narrow your options because you just never know what's around the corner. And the only reason I went to the interview, this is awful, because I was knackered at the time, was I could see, I hilariously had a corner office at that point, um, massively punching above my pay scale with that. Um, just because I had a massive team, they didn't know where else to put us. Uh, so I ended up having a corner office, which was comical. You could see from my office where I needed to go for the interview. It was about 50 metres away. Uh, and so my colleague at the time was like, Jen, seriously, you can't not go. He's like, that isn't even lazy. That's a whole word that doesn't exist. But like, let's <laughs> get your sorry ass over there. Um, and I went and it was a very different organisation than it is now. But it was just a really interesting opportunity. So I was able to to join there and moved into the world of asset management and retail investment products. Wow. And so then, how long did you spend at Octopus? Uh, four years. Some maternity leave for a bit of that, but I did all sorts of things. I had ran the, set up and ran the change and delivery team. They were like, we can't implement the CRM system. And I was like, there's only 250 of you. How can this be true? I've just done a big project. And then you realize in small firms, the dynamics are very different. So everybody has an opinion. Yep. Big firms, you know you can change absolutely your all. So you grumble, but you kind of just get on board with it. In small firms, everybody feels entitled to have an opinion. There's there's a real kind of a learning from there is it's that kind of Amazon um, leadership principle of uh, what is it? Um, like I can't remember how you say it, but it's like contest and, and um, get on board. Basically, you can um, uh, you know, challenge something as much as you want, but when the decision's made, you then just need to yeah. get on board with it. Didn't happen there. Very, very, very inefficient way of operating. But the main issue there was data. Um, so as you know, joy about technology is it's pretty binary doesn't have like gray areas um and so you can't shove a phone number that says but only call fred between the hours of 2 and 4 p.m into a field that's locked down for numbers so i realized within the first week that the crm wasn't the problem it was the data that was the problem and that was the first time i think i really kind of fell in love with data oh, that's really cool i, I joined just eat at a similar size that they were just yeah. over like 200 people and it's an interesting time to be in a growing organization. Because you were in tech with them, weren't you, as yeah. well, obviously? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, so I imagine that was quite sort of organizationally similar. Yeah, and I think it was tough for them having me come in because I was, like, just come from this big corporate. But I remember the first... I mean, don't get me wrong, because the guys who founded it are extraordinary and have achieved more than I ever would in my life. So there is no derision here whatsoever. But it's just to give people who are in small firms a bit more comfort that people don't always get it spot on from day one there was a strategy paper that came out and it said the strategy is to hire 20 new salespeople and I was like oh that's not strategy that's not 
tactics. That's not even an objective. That's a task to adhere to an objective. And it was just really interesting to me. And I, I struggled to adjust to that culture. Um, I definitely didn't like knock it out of the park to start off with um, uh, and found it kind of, you know, it was a real reset. And I really understand why small companies are nervous about hiring corporate people. Um, and that was a really interesting lesson for me to kind of adjust. But I'm really grateful for it because there's amazing people there. Like the quality of individual was astronomical. Um, really, really smart people. And I learned a huge amount. I also got to work for an amazing lady who came in as interim COO, CFO, to then we went through the reorg of the business to what it is now and implementing budgets and all sorts of things. So it was literally like attending a subsection of an MBA and working for her. She's a very, very competent lady. Um, so yeah, it, it was a good learning experience. And then when I came back off mat leave, I went into uh, work with a brand new business that was being incubated by Octopus itself um, to create a new way of doing equity release mortgages. And so we built a business from absolutely nothing up to taking in you know, millions of loans. Um, and then Octopus Energy came along and very rightly they backed Octopus Energy, but they needed all the capital to go there. Very capital intensive setting up an energy business. Um, and so we and a couple of others got kind of got sacked off, which is absolutely the right strategic decision to make, but was really sad because that product was awesome. Um, and I still think at some point somebody's going to pick up what we we started and carry it on. But that was the first time I realised I really like startup world. So then, was it after that that you decided you were going to have a run at your own? No, because I then had like so when that died off, I was five weeks pregnant. So I then left Octopus because I went. The problem is when you get to a certain point in your career, there aren't that many other jobs you can kind of go to, um, and there wasn't really anything else in the group that was gonna work so so I left I then went and um, worked for somebody who I'd been their client buying a small data science business um, and so I worked through the SPA and all of the earnout so kind of the for those that don't know what an earnout is all of the uh, objectives that need to be hit for the original founders to earn money um, and uh, and then how that business was going to work um, and then took on kind of an MD role for six months. But the joy with being pregnant and doing that, apart from the fact it's pretty hard work, is that everybody knows you're going. And an interim is, the, the role of an interim is inherently hard because you're often there to make change. But when people know that you've got no skin in the game, when people know that you've, you know, you're not doing this with some ulterior agenda, it's like, I'm birthing a child in December, so I'm out of here. Like, there's no there's no question about me having ulterior motives. Yeah. And that was actually really helpful. I mean, I never want to be pregnant again. But it was uh, <laughs> it was bizarrely well-timed. Came back from mat leave, and actually the lady I'd worked for in Octopus introduced me to a company where I became chief of staff in the run-up to an IPO. Um, well, no, I worked in private equity for six months first, and then did that. Um, and that was brutal again. And I finally realized, um, as one of my great friends said to me, that just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think a huge part of that is imposter syndrome. Because for so long, you leave the army. I mean, I used to be a marksman shot, but what does that do in civvy world? Like, what is my value other than just being able to get shit done? Which has always been like my USP. And so it took me you know, a good decade to realize that I did have commercial value. You know, I, I was employable. I genuinely didn't believe that for a really long time, uh, even though I had really good jobs and all the rest of it. And it was really only in my last role 
when I was like, okay, I don't, I don't need to be doing this. This is like killing me slowly. Um, and so kind of resigned, uh, very amicably, uh, but resigned and uh, went on gardening leave. And uh, is that when then That's on the gardening when, leave you thought, I'm yeah, going to do something? So it's the first time in my life, because anybody that's had kids and been on mat leave, particularly my son had colic, so there was absolutely no downtime. That was shit. Colic and reflux, not Oof. recommended. You don't have any kind of thinking time. Um, and I took my second... And I took quite a short maternity leaves as well. My husband did a lot of the parental leave, which is amazing. Like, all of this is only possible when you're a team. Like, the best decision I never made, as my husband often tells me it was his decision, not mine, is to marry my husband. Um, yeah, going back to the me saying no a few times. Yeah. Um, and uh, having a real partnership, having that firm family base where you see everything you do as a team effort is un. You know, there are not words to articulate how important I think that is if you want to be successful, particularly for women. And I think COVID's really thrown us all back with childcare. Um, and the number of my girlfriends who had to give up their jobs or felt, you know, the number of times I heard, oh, it's like being back in the 1950s, I'm expected to do the house cleaning and the childcare, you know, and, and, and. It's really kind of aided that, that gap rather than aided the kind of the coagulation of roles. But Jamie is an absolute superhero when it kind of comes to that stuff. So it's the only way I could have done it. There's no way I could have done my last job if he hadn't picked up all the childcare. Um, but yeah, so first time ever, I'm on gardening leave. We keep getting COVID. So we have COVID for the third time. We were early adopters. We bought it back from skiing. So uh, we... You went super spreaders, were we you? Were, <laughs> well, we, we didn't know we had it. And we were so ill. And I just remember thinking, cause Jamie had shingles. I had sinusitis. We couldn't go to the doctors because it's like the first lockdown. This, this is like March the 20th or something, 2020. We're so ill. We're like, we actually don't know if we can keep our children alive because one of them's one and one of them's three at this point. And we're like, shit. And we literally did an hour each. Like, we're lying on the sofa. I mean, bearing in mind that we've both been through a lot. Like, my husband ran with a broken kneecap for six months. You know, like, like we're both idiots. But this really, fin COVID really kicked us in the butt. But anyway, we had COVID for the third time. It hits him more than it hits me. I'm By this point, my body's like COVID schmovid. Um, and I had started looking for some jobs. And I was being told that I was too senior for the jobs that I was applying for. And that was really frustrating because I've basically been working my ass off. I want to see my children who I quite like. Well, I love, I don't always like them, but you know what I mean, you're yeah, a dad. Yeah, yeah, um, and, but I kind of want to hang out with them. Not really seen a huge amount of them. I was like, I'm a really good chief of staff. I've done it three times. I've got really great references. And they're like, yeah, but you know, you're more of like a COO really. And I said, like, but I don't want to be a COO. I want to be able to do something that I can come in, hit the ground running and, and was not landing. So got told a couple of times that I was too senior for the role. And I was like, honestly, this is a good bang for buck, guys. And it really, again, is like, just because you have an assumption about somebody, I think people project their own feelings, their own ambitions on others. Uh, and I think it's a really big part of women in the workforce is let people apply for the job they want, not the job you think they fit best into. And then I got offered a couple of jobs at a management consultancy firm and I burst into tears because I was like, there's no part of my soul that wants to go and do these jobs. Uh, and so as my husband was um, sick in bed, I uh, drank gin by myself because I'm classy, um, wallowed in self-pity, which I'm not normally prone to, to be fair, like a very anti-self-pity. And then had through the, the mental opening of gin, I was like, what am I good at? And I was like, well, I know loads about death. I know loads about like, sorting your life out, knows about data. 
Um, and that was the, the original form. So overnight, I drank more gin. Then I realised I should stop drinking gin, switched to coffee, didn't sleep, wrote a business plan. My poor beleaguered husband woke up, still with COVID on the Saturday morning, with a slightly psychotic wife, fueled purely on coffee and gin, with a business plan. I was like, situation change! <laughs> I'm going to start a business. And then, so you, you have a co-founder. So how did that, yeah. how did that come around? Co- uh, absolute phenomenal serendipity. I'm so, so lucky to have Kathy as a co-founder. So I was doing it by myself for about eight months with help from other people, but mainly kind of by myself. And then um, I served in Afghan with Kathy's husband, who's a great friend of mine, godfather to my son. Um, and I've known Kathy since they met, so for over a decade, and we've always gone really well. But I never thought I'd start a business. She'd never thought she'd start a business. We never had a conversation about working together. She used to work in film. I worked in finance, completely separate. Um, but I've always really respected her, and she used to run film production. And if you can run Captain America film production, I mean, quite frankly, you can do absolutely anything. And I've always really kind of respected um, respected that skill set. So when we were starting to kind of go further down the line and we were hitting some hurdles with our tech and management of the people we were working with, I said to her, would you fancy coming just to kind of work a day a week? And I, again, through the medium of booze, very on PC, took her out for dinner and got a drunk on whiskey and persuaded her to come and work for a day a week. By the end of the week, it was three days a week. Um, by January, I persuaded her to be a co-founder um, and best decision ever. Um, we're really complimentary. Um, and people talk a lot about having a co-founder that's complimentary. Like on the surface, we can look quite similar, um, similar sort of age, similar sort of family situation. But we've had very different lives um, and we come at problems from a very different angle. And it means we have so, so much kind of trust and respect in each other that we really enjoy that process. And I know that if I talk something through with Kathy, the outcome will be better than if I try and do it by myself and vice versa. And yeah, it's, it's, I feel very fortunate to be working with her. That's awesome. So walk us through the, the, the business idea and what the, what the, 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 the gin and coffee fueled plan <laughs> roughly looked like. Very professional. I mean, I'm really coming across <laughs> as like a highbrow professional here. It started off, so when, um, when James died, we had to decide whether to donate his organs or not. And by pure fortune, I'd had the conversation with him a week before about it. And he said, yeah, I really want to donate my organs. Um, and so when the decision came to be made, I was able to say to his parents, because obviously it was their decision, not mine, I know that what James wanted was this. It's still their choice, but I know this is what he wanted. And it meant that a horrible decision was a really easy one. And that's such a stark moment. I mean, I was in my, how old was I, 20 at the time, like 2021, 20, super stark moment to realize the power of knowledge, the power of information. And then when my mum died, because it was so sudden, my dad wasn't in the best place. So I had to organize funeral. Like, how do you start? How do you find a, a burial? Like, where do you bury them? Um, you know, none of us are religious. We couldn't have it in a church. So I had to go and find somewhere else that would host the memorial, like blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was like, I'm, I have all the privilege of education in the world and it's almost impossible to make this work. How is that ever gonna be achievable for somebody that doesn't have all of that base understanding? And actually our organizing loads of military events had really helped as well, like loads of like officers' mess balls. And so I started thinking about that. And then I'd done a lot of work with data in my last job. Because when you go through to IPO, one of the biggest things is data. And corporations, and again, in the job I'd done previously in private equity, it was all about data as an asset. And 
corporations are beginning, corporations know the power of data. You know, if you think about money supermarket or anywhere else, everybody consumes your data, but there's nowhere where um, you as a consumer can be empowered through your own information and data. And then the other thing that I felt very passionate about is financial literacy, and I have done for years, which is um, the average reading age of a soldier joining the army is 11. Um, Two thirds of the adult population don't know what compound interest is. That I, I remember when you told me that in the pub, and I didn't believe you. And I went, <laughs> out, I went, out, I went out and asked some people, and I was like, "Holy shit, Jen's right." <laughs> yeah, not making it up. Uh, and I was in a regiment briefing. I should have trusted you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we were new friends then. It was and I mean, I was in a regiment briefing them this week, and uh, one person put their hand up. One. Um, and the, the, I'm a massive believer in life trajectories. I've had a few sliding doors moments, so I maybe thought about this more than most. But the difference, if you understand compound interest, you know why it's important to save. You've got the information about where you're starting, what your outgoings are, how you can manage all of that. You can get yourself in a really different position than if you just don't know all of that. And we kind of talk about Fred. Fred in scenario A and Fred in scenario B. And the difference to people's outcomes, their families is so astronomical. And I just thought there's got to be something within this, the power of data that really helps people navigate these situations through life better. So what my arc is, it's the first consolidator of consumer data. And we use some really cool emergent technology that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, that allows us to kind of consume and digest that data. And then it's all stored in a secure, smart personal vault that then guides you through life with everything from alerts that your passport's going to run out all the way through to um, cool stuff about how to help you reduce your outgoings, uh, save money um, and, and do things um, with better outcomes for you and your family. That's awesome. So uh, how do people... How do people get on board with using MyArc? So we're still super early, hence why I'm being a little coy about some of the emergent technology because you get into the world of doing some really cool AI stuff and until we're there, we've just got to kind of be mindful of it. But um, you can sign up on our website. We have a fortnightly newsletter that goes out with top tips. Um, it's myark.io, so M-Y-A-R-K.io. We're also on LinkedIn and Instagram, Facebook, etc. Uh, and so you can have the subscriber newsletter. We're, the MVP is going live in August and we're going to be launching more broadly in September. So anybody who's interested, you know, do sign up and they can be one of the first to, to get on board and feedback because a huge part of this is the whole point of it is to make people's lives better. And so we want people to sign up. We want people to tell us what doesn't work, what features they want to have to be part of that community with us to build something that really affects change. So if you were going to have a chat with someone who was coming up to leaving the forces, what would what would you advise them to do? A few things. Ones that have been spoken about loads, like get on LinkedIn, network, network, network. Um, I think the thing that people don't do very well leaving the military, because um, I was one of the first to leave, so I've helped or try to help a lot of people since they're leaving. People think about what job they want and it's completely the wrong question to ask. And I think unfortunately the career transition program as it stands encourages you to think about what job and produce a fucking awful CV. Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> you've seen some of them, right? Um, uh, yeah, get somebody who isn't in the military to help you write your CV. I mean, obviously. Um, but what I always say to people is, you've got to be really thoughtful about how you want to live your life. So 
I was based in London, which is really expensive. I was single at the time. Um, so where do you want to live with your family? Um, what is your family situation is like number one. Then how much do you want to earn? Like what is your bare minimum? So like every year my husband and I sit down together because I'm weird like this. And we say like, what, what is our minimum amount of income that we need to have? And then what does that trans, you know, minimum amount of money that we need, and what does that translate into income after tax and all the rest of it? Because that gives you real empowerment. So don't always chase the biggest paycheck. Understand what you need to live the life that you choose to live. And then if you can get more money, great, but it allows you more capacity to look at slightly different roles. Don't always chase the biggest paycheck. Bad decision. That's very tactical, not strategic. Um, and then think about how you want to work. So do you want to work in an office? Do you want to be out and about? How many hours a week? Because there's not many people that would have worked the way that I've chosen to work. So I have people going, oh, you know, you've got a higher salary than me. It's like, well, by an hour by hour basis, probably not that much more. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, just a different choice. And I will never choose. I mean, I work all hours now because I'm doing a startup, obviously. But, you know, it's, you know the theory is eventually that will be less. Um, uh, and, and just think about the life that you want to live. So where do you want to be? How much do you have to earn? Um, and how do you want to work? And that brackets it down. And then when you're within that, go, what are the things I'm really bloody good at? Like, don't this whole thing about like, dealing with your weaknesses like we we all have a gazillion weaknesses I cannot speak languages for love nor money but it doesn't mean I'm going to start trying to be an interpreter to get over my weaknesses I mean that's just a really bone idea think about the things that you're really strong at so particularly when you leave the army your ability to solve a problem your ability to get stuff done and your ability to do what you say you're going to do automatically differentiates you I don't know what your experience is but I think that differentiates you from most people maybe lots of people yeah yeah and really have that a sign of value to that like that is valuable because when you go into an organization they need people who can get stuff done um and then also have um think about finding a foundation so if you want to start your own business sometimes it's really sensible to go and cut your teeth in an organization first like learn how things are being done like see it as another step in your education whilst being able to have a salary have a bit of security because transitioning out of the military is really hard. Like you've never had to find a GP before. You've never had to find a dentist before. You know, you suddenly go and work with people where there isn't a common purpose that's bigger than you are. Work with people who say they're going to do something and they just don't do it. Yeah. So all of these things. Weird corporate power games. Weird um... corporate power. Uh, I mean, like, you just sit there going, seriously. Um, and so there's so much to adjust to. I think it's about being kind to yourself. Um, and then it's also the rush. Like, I am impatient, a little bit impatient. Uh, and there's a really big thing I've really felt that I had to get the right job to start off with. And so what I ended up doing is I spent the first five years in all the wrong jobs. Uh, maybe not five years, but certainly three years in the wrong jobs. And I would just really encourage people to have the conviction in themselves that I did not have, so pop to kettle, that says, find find a career that you want to have but don't worry so much about the first job and if the first job is an opportunity to rule stuff out then that's a good good experience but don't beat yourself up about it and then you can move to another job and and i think there's stats that say people don't generally find on leaving the military where they want to be until job number three i think it's just being kind to yourself i was so judgy of myself i was so you know i need to get a job now i've been looking for a job for a month like now I mean, a different sort of seniority, but now I think if I if I ever did go job hunting again, that's a six month, you know, cycle. Um, and at the time, I remember not being employed for a month. 
and it wasn't even a month. I ended up being unemployed for three weeks at the beginning, but I thought that was eternity. Um, yeah. And you jump at the wrong thing. Yeah. Jen, it, it's been it's been great talking to you today, and what what a journey you've been on. Um, that's um, yeah. Thank you for sharing in it, it, so candidly. It's been really good talking to you today. <laughs> Lovely talking to you, Nick.